registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. All right, Dr. Yael, it's great to have you on here today. Thanks, Erin. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Um, today's topic is on genetic testing, and you are one of the leading experts on nutrigenomics. So I'd just love to hear a little bit about um, how you got interested in the field and why you're passionate about this topic. So it, it started some time ago, um, a good 20 years ago, where I actually started um, in architecture. I started mm-hmm. as an architecture student with absolutely no interest whatsoever in science, genetics, nutrition, or anything like that. And then um, my grand got ill. She she was kind of a very close grandparent to me. She was the only grandparent I had. And she um, landed up dying from cancer very quickly, very tragically, like within three months of having been diagnosed. Mm. And I was just heartbroken by this idea that someone could die so quickly um, with so little understanding that they couldn't explain to me why it happened. They couldn't explain to me what she could have done differently. And they couldn't explain to me what we could have done to help her. It was just like no answers. And this is in um, 1988. So it was a while ago. And so kind of sitting by her bedside sent me on on this idea that, you know, maybe architecture wasn't the right thing for me. And maybe I, I needed to be doing something a little bit more meaningful And so I set out on this journey of trying to figure out what we could have done differently. And um, I started looking for a degree in health, which, as you will probably know, is extremely hard. And especially in 1988, even in 2021, it's hard. But in 1988, it was impossible. And the closest I came to was dietetics. So I found this degree, which sounded perfect, you know, food, health, curing disease, all of these things. Only I was like three weeks into dietetics and was absolutely horrified to discover. Yeah, I was was horrified at what I was being taught in my dietetics degree. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you relate to this. Where three weeks in and I was being taught that like chocolate cake and ice cream was a perfectly good food for a hospitalized chronic disease patient. Mm. And I had this like really sinking feeling in my gut going, you know, here I was, changed degrees, following this dream. And, get, and I'm having a conversation on chocolate cake and ice cream, something is fundamentally wrong with this profession and with this degree, um, even though I didn't know anything about nutrition. I knew something was wrong. So I made a decision to stay and finish the degree, although it was pretty much as bad for the next couple of years and never got better. I even went and did a postgrad, still didn't get better. And finished my dietetics qualification with a sense of, well, that was five years of my life. Now now what? Because I'm no closer to discovering the answers that I set out to find. 
and I actually don't know where to go next. I don't know where those, I knew they weren't in medicine. Um, and I just didn't know what to look for. You know, I was reading Patrick Colford's Optimum Nutrition Bible, but that's it. That's all that was really available. So I did what, what we usually do, which is I went backpacking, you know, and we can't figure out a solution. I went traveling in Europe and I landed up working in a clinic in, um, um, in the UK, in London, nutrition clinic. That was quite a progressive kind of alternative nutrition clinic, doing some research for them. And while I was there, we were approached by this um, amazing scientist, uh, Rosengill Garrison, who was a geneticist. Mm. And she had this idea of setting up um, a company that would look at nutrition and genetics together. Mm. And she was looking for a dietitian who knew about genetics. Well, I didn't know anything about genetics, but um, she couldn't find anyone who could. So she said, like, would you be interested in coming to spend a couple of days with me, which I did. And I, I really didn't understand. This is in uh, 2000, so 21 years ago, um, anything that she said. But there was something about the conversation around genetics and nutrition mm. that really resonated with me. And there was, there was like a spark for me of saying, I, I know I don't understand this, but maybe these answers that I've been searching for might be in our DNA. It might be something that is so biological, it's like so cellular, and that I really wanted to find out more. So that was, um, yeah, that was the beginning of, of this journey. And 20 years later, where I joined, I landed up um, joining Roslyn at Sona. I was a second employee. And I landed up moving to the US um, with Roslyn to, to, to build the first test. Still didn't know what I was talking about. And about four years into it, I realized I still didn't know what I was talking about. And so I decided to go back to university and I went back um, and did my PhD in genetics and, and obviously specifically nutrigenomics. And so that's, that, that's the very, very, very short version of, of how I land up um, talking to you today. That's wonderful. And it, it almost feels like such a beautiful tribute to your grandmother. Um, you know, what you're doing now and your passion for this field, I think is really beautiful. And I can absolutely relate into how, you know, my own personal experience has led me into this career path and absolutely can relate to the fact that the dietetics uh, career that I chose was so wonderful in many ways, but I also I felt like I was spending so much of my time doing my own research and, you know, forming my own consensus about how to treat the root cause of certain diseases. And that was quite frustrating to me. And so, you know, an example that I can think of, you mentioned the hospital example and, you know, my family members, when they're in the hospital, I'm showing up every day with like homemade smoothies and, you know, pre-made lunches and, you know, it's really unfortunate that um, that's the type of food that we're feeding these patients who are clearly ill and hoping that we can improve their their outcomes is, is you know, just unfortunate. So, Absolutely. And, and you're not the only one. I mean, we if you speak to most dietitians, we have a very similar story to tell. Mm -hmm. Obviously, not every dietitian has walked that journey, mm -hmm. but there's so many of us who've I always say, you know, I don't judge a practitioner by their degree, mm -mm. but by what they did when they left university and what they studied and what seeking they've done afterwards really determines who we are as healers, ultimately. Mm. 
Mm, I love that. I've never heard that before. And I am definitely going to borrow that and quote you for it because that's a, that's a really great point because I do see a lot of people nowadays throwing around credentials. Um, and I, I like how you just put that. It's more about what you did after that. So I know we talked a little bit off air, um, kind of about my skepticism with genetic testing. Um, and I, I am by no means an expert in genetics whatsoever. I've you know done some research into it, but you are the expert today. So I am almost hoping that you can kind of, um, you know, ease my skepticism and apprehensiveness because, um, I, the research that I've seen in general, um, and this may be a weakness, has looked at specific polymorphis- polymorphisms like single polymorphisms and trying to treat them individually and see, you know, favorable outcomes from maybe, you know, certain dietary, um, you know, interventions and things like that. And the majority of the studies that I've seen have not found um, gene predictive responses to certain therapies. So, that is my skepticism. I'm just going to put it out there, but I'd love if you could first by um, explaining what nutrigenomics is, first of all, and then um, how would you respond to my uh, skepticism and apprehensiveness? So first of all, your skepticism is excellent and you are hundred percent right, by the way, in your interpretation of the literature. So we'll get, we'll, we'll come around to that and why you're so right and what the alternative is. But um, let's go back to what is nutrigenomics because it's really important we understand and also that we understand what is different from what we're seeing in the marketplace, so what companies are selling versus what is the science that we're so excited about. So let's, mm. let's start first with that and then we'll talk about what's happening in the marketplace, which speaks to what you were concerned about. So really nutrigenomics is, is this relationship between nutrition and genetics, and, and when I, t- I say nutrigenomics, I actually often talk about lifestyle, exercise. So I always say, you know, it's everything that really um, determines our environment. So now imagine we, we are 99.9% identical in our DNA. So in our DNA, we have this sequence, this language, this code. We use the word blueprint that defines who we are. But what it mostly does is it defines who we are in the world around us. How do we respond to our world? And when I use the word world, I mean, how do we respond to the food we eat, to the exercise we do? But it goes further than that. What about the stress we encounter? What about traumas that happen to us? Um, In your case, what about when exercise becomes kind of a, a, a more extreme version of exercise? How does our body respond? So everything about who we are is how we respond to the world around us And a significant part of that answer is in our DNA. And that's because 99.9% we're identical in our code, but at 0.1% we differ from each other. Mm. And it's these differences, and you call them single single nucleotide polymorphisms. It's a very big word. I like to use the term gene variance because it's where in our genes are we different from each other. That's the variant part. And we are different from each other at about three to four million places in our body, but most of them don't actually make a difference to us. So we're not interested in three to four million. But there are some of these gene variants, some of these what I call spelling changes, because it's just a difference in a letter in our DNA that makes us respond differently to what we eat, our exercise, our trauma, our stress, etc. 
first is this genetic variation. Why am I different from you? Why do you, are you able to perform so well in, in, in sport, fitness, and I'm not? Why, when I eat a particular food, does it make me feel red, give me brain fog? Why, when I encounter stress or trauma, I'm not able to be resilient to it? So genetics helps us answer questions about who we are. And these single polymorphisms, these gene variants, tell us about how our biochemistry, how our body processes might change when we have one of these spelling changes. So one of the great, great weaknesses in the scientific literature is what they've tried to do is take this one little gene variant, of which we have many, and associate it with a great big disease condition. So how does this little gene, PPR gamma, associate with something like diabetes? But we know that diabetes is a huge and complicated disease that doesn't happen overnight. You don't wake up in the morning and suddenly have diabetes. It's something we call a chronic disease that develops over 10, 20, 30, 40 years time. So what was happening in our bodies over that time period that was suboptimal function that over time landed up developing as diabetes or as arthritis or as cardiovascular, any of the chronic diseases. Was there something in our DNA where we had some of these spinning changes, these variations that changed our biochemistry? And by biochemistry, it could be changing our enzyme activity, our hormones, our brain messaging, anything changed where an enzyme was working, how hard that enzyme was working. Was there something in our biochemistry that was changed by this that over time, plus all the choices we made in life, our diet, our lifestyle, our exposure, our toxins, would have made us more susceptible to a disease or how we respond to our environment. Mm. So so I I, I talk about self-knowledge when I talk about nutrigenomics, which is I want to know myself. I want to know why I'm different from you, and I want to understand how my DNA, which is in essence myself, makes me respond differently to the world around us. But that's only 50% of the equation, right? There's another 50%, which I never got taught for like the first 15 years that I was in nutrigenomics. I only learned this in like the last five, six years. And that is, when I was looking for this answer about my grandmother, I was trying to understand how we could make better decisions around nutrition that could prevent disease or help manage disease. Mm -hmm. And so when you are making choices like these beautiful smoothies that you bring into family members in the hospital, I imagine some beautiful plant food, what is actually the power of that food? Because if you study dietetics, you don't understand it. You understand that we can use foods for compensating, for deficiencies, but you don't really understand food as medicine. Why is food so powerful? And actually, food is powerful because of genetics. So there are lots of what we call bioactives or compounds in our food, especially in our plant foods, that when we eat them, they switch on or switch off genes that are extremely powerful in healing our body or harming our body. Mm. So we know that when we have toxins going into our body, they are switching on genes or switching off genes that will harm our body through inflammation or oxidative stress or blocking detox, or we're eating foods that actually switch up all these defense mechanisms. So this, this is 
we actually call this nutrigenomics and we call the one about gene variants nutrigenetics, which is how can I make decisions around food that will switch on my genes in such a way to heal my body? So now the food is not plugging holes in our nutrition. It's actually switching on a master switch in our, we walk into our house and we switch on the lights and it's enabling our bodies to heal themselves. So genetics is actually way more than we ever imagined when we started down this road of, well, how does genetics have a relationship with nutrition, which 20 years ago, I thought there was no relationship. Now, I think a really interesting point to make for the listeners too, is this whole idea that what we're eating can impact our genetics in a positive way. So what you're saying is not, um, you know, we're born with a certain set of genetic codes and we, you know, live a certain way and that we have no control over it. Like, it's just kind of what you're born with, but what you're saying is, and what I know is, okay, so what you eat, your lifestyle, your stress, your past traumas, all of those things can actually, you have some, some amount of control over the outcomes of your health trajectory based on the fact that all of those things can switch on or off the genes that you were born with. 100% correct. And in fact, we have a lot of control. So this idea that what we're born with is set in stone, you know, your genes are your genes, is not true. What, why genetic testing is useful is because it gives us insight and self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what it does. It says, who am I and how do I respond to the world? Because it's not set in stone, we are able to take the self-knowledge about who we are, the insights we've learned about what areas we need to focus on. So if we understand from our genetic variation that we need to focus on glucose insulin or on histamine or on gluten or on caffeine or on hormones, we then can start making decisions around our nutrition, our exercise, our environmental exposure on which genes we want to switch on and off to heal our body and optimize health. Mm-hmm. So can I, can I, maybe if I give an example, it might, be, it might be the best, right? So I do a genetic test, and in my genetic test, I find that there's a group of gene variants that might be impacting or maybe impacting my ability to clear toxins from my body. Mm-hmm. And, and when I use the word toxins, I don't just mean pesticides and herbicides and pollution. I mean, when I metabolize my, my hormones in my body and we've got these kind of hormone metabolites, how do I get them out the body effectively? When we, everything in the body, whether it's endogenous from inside our body or, or exogenous, has to be processed through our body. Whether it's smoke particles that I'm coming across as passive smoke, it doesn't matter, we have to manage them. So I discovered through a genetic test that I may not be as optimally efficient as clearing them. Mm-hmm. Now I work with my practitioner who studied genetics to say, how do I make better choices around my diet to kind of optimize these processes? There is a wonderful group of vegetables called the cruciferous vegetables, which are broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kohlrabi, Brussels sprouts, broccoli sprouts. Don't forget the broccoli sprouts. Love those. And in these vegetables is a compound called glucoraphanin. And when this glucoraphanin is exposed to a very special enzyme, which is also in the vegetables, and we we chew those vegetables, we produce this extraordinary compound called sulforaphane. 
So sulforaphane isn't something you could buy in a shop because you have to combine these beautiful compounds of glucoraphane and amaracinase, and then you make sulforaphane. But what sulforaphane does, well, it does many things, is it switches on a whole bunch of what I call cellular defense genes, genes that help protect our body. Most importantly, it switches on a group of genes called the GST genes, which are all involved in phase two detoxification, the ability of the body to take toxins and clear them out of our body. So when we eat foods like cruciferous, which means you've got to have your coleslaws, your raw vegetables, right? You can't cook these and expect it's going to work. We are able to upregulate, switch on genes that are going to help our body detoxify. But actually, there's another thing that sulforaphane does, which is totally extraordinary. There is um, a name of a um, kind of, we call it a transcription factor in the body. I'm sure you know this, called NRF2. Mm -hmm. And I call NRF2 the master switch of the body. So now you walk into your home and you can walk around the house and switch on all the lights and you have illumination in your home. Or you can have a very clever master switch in your house where you walk in, you switch on one, one switch and it switches on all the lights in your house. So NRF2 is like that. If we can switch on NRF2, we can switch on about 500 different genes in our body that are all involved in defending us against our environment, toxins, stress, um, metabolites, all the things we need to. And this is this for me was the real aha moment, you know, that, that journey that I started with my gran, which literally took me 15 years because it was when I started understanding how truly powerful nutrition can be in being able to get our body to behave in such a way that it actually heals itself. And this is the most perfect example. Mm. And I, this is dietetics, sorry. right? I love sulforaphane. I grow my own broccoli sprouts at home and I've got like jars of them in the freezer that I'm currently living at my, my parents' house, you know, because of the pandemic. And they're like, what is with all these jars taking up all this space in our freezer? And I'll go in every day and take like a little spoonful of them. And they'll look at me like I have 10 heads. And I'm just like, listen, there's so much research. I put it in their smoothies. I sneak them in because there is, there's so much benefits to these compounds. Um, I've posted this on my Instagram before. It's really easy to grow your own sprouts at home and um, cheaper to do it. If you get some, you know, really high quality seeds, a jar, and, um, you know, have a little bit of patience. It takes about a week to, to sprout. Exactly. Well, well done. I mean, you're having the best form you can have. So of all the things you can possibly take, the broccoli sprout is actually the most potent. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I mean, there are some great supplements in the market. There's some awful supplements in the market, which are not active. But really, as you said, put it into your salad, put it into your smoothie, but a couple of teaspoons of broccoli sprouts, your sulforaphane yield is just extraordinary. So... And, and, you know, um, I, did a, I did a webinar a couple of months ago on, I wouldn't say on COVID, but it was, it was on um, immune, immune resilience. Mm-hmm. So what role does genetics play in why one person is so much more susceptible to getting COVID and another one isn't? And then also why, you know, if you have COVID, like why does one response? And, and we had this amazing conversation around these genes and these like ACE2 receptors and guess who came back into the conversation? Sulforaphane. 
So you, you really, you know, it's, I, I don't like, I cannot go through a day without my and It's just, it's a not negotiable for me. Anyway, but let's go back to genetics. Others will go down. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so, so somebody comes to you and they're, they have this genetic information. Um, now as a dietitian or just a, you know, a functional practitioner in general, I would typically recommend that most people consume these foods to begin with, just because, you know, they're, they're healthy they, you know, can protect you from all types of certain cancers. They can help detoxify things like estrogen and toxins. So explain to me how genetics can help me better um, specifically recommend a nutrient or a specific type of diet yeah. based off that. Because those are things that I would recommend no matter what. So there's a couple of answers to that. So the first thing is when we talk about genetics, we say you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. So, so one thing to understand is when I do genetics, I don't focus on the single gene variant, which you mentioned earlier. I actually group genes together to look at biochemistry. Mm. So I want to know, are there a group of genes when I look at them together that are impacting a certain biochemical process? Okay. Can you Based on that, an example of some of these? Like what are yeah. the most profound ones that you will, will specifically target and treat for? Right. So, so in my genetic test, we have 36 pathways. So 36 biochemical pathways. And because I'm, func- I'm, I'm, I'm a functional medicine devotee, we always start with root cause analysis. So we always start upstream. And so the first category would be like cellular. So detox, inflammation, oxidative stress modulation, the second category would be like systems. So that for me would be glucose, insulin. It would be cognitive health. It would be mood. Um, it would be male hormones versus or female hormones. Something like um, histamine. Um, I'm trying to think the other ones off the top there. Then I have an energy. So what genes drive energy? Now, when I talk about energy, some people talk about diet. I talk about energy. So what are the genes that drive us to consume food because we don't consume food in the same way? What genes influence how hungry we get or how full we feel? Mm-hmm. Because nothing is purely genetic or purely choice. It's always a combination. Mm-hmm. What genes drive how efficient we are at storing calories in our body, at burning up calories in our body? So there are six pathways, biochemical pathways, just dealing with energy. Then we have six pathways that deal with activity. So we talk about things like exercise or fitness potential. Why does someone have a higher baseline of fitness when they start training than someone else? Mm. And can we give you information about that? Can we help you understand what your exercise or fitness potential is? You know, should you be targeting a podium place or should you get off the couch and just keep exercising? Where should you be focusing your efforts? So is it more endurance versus power? Where are your energy systems really being able to be generated? So these are all biochemical systems being built into pathway names, right? We talk about injury susceptibility in terms of activity and and sport and recreation, as well as recovery from training. Why do some of us need two days to recover from a big training bout and someone else can actually get up the next morning? And then we have um, an, a missed cardiovascular system. So that obviously speaks for itself. And then nutrients. We have about 12 pathways. We want to understand how efficient are we in metabolizing and using nutrients. And that could be caffeine, folate, B vitamins. It's also things like gluten. You know, some of us are, aren't so fantastic at managing gluten. 
um, salts, um, choline, very important for brain health. So there's 36 pathways. Now, patient comes to you and you're going to ask them a whole lot of questions about who they are. You're going to look at their medical history, their diet history, their health history. You're going to ask them why they came to you, what they're trying to get out of the consult with you. And you're going to do that because you're a really well-trained practitioner. But you have gathered 50 plus percent of understanding who your patient is. Because the other 50% is, who are you at a genetic level in terms of how you respond to the world around you? Mm. So now I'm going to take everything that I normally do with patients, and I'm going to add in 36 genetic pathways that are going to tell me where there might be something that I I don't know what I don't know. Mm. So is it potentially detox, methylation, glucose insulin, histamine? So often we do the best we can in assessing our patient. This adds a layer of assessment that we didn't have before. So genetics by itself is not a solution. So anyone who says like, I can just look at genetic test and know what to do is lying. It's genetics in addition to everything that I normally do. Now you truly understand who your patient is, how they responded to the world around them. And more importantly, where would be a good place to start with your patient? Because you're 100% right. All of these things are good things, but we can't do 100 different dietary changes with our patients. Mm -hmm. So one thing genetics does give you is some insight on where should I start? Mm -hmm. Should I start targeting methylation or detox or glucose? In a month's time, I can come back and and focus on something else. But right now, based on the genetics of this patient and based on understanding who they are and what they've come here for, I'm going to use that. It's like a screening tool almost. Mm. to decide thing. The second part of the question is, vegetables are good for everyone. Smoking's bad for everyone. But quantity changes between individuals. Mm. So for a general patient who doesn't have any major issues around detox or NRF2, I'm going to say, you know what? If you can have a portion of raw cruciferous vegetables every day, I'm super happy because it's not that easy. But if I have a patient who I know that those pathways are compromised and I really I want to upregulate detox or NRF2, I don't want one portion of CRISPRs. I might want five portions. Mm. That's the second thing. The third thing is motivating your patient. So I want my patient to eat three to four portions of raw cruciferous vegetables a day. If they read it on the internet or they're in a magazine or you're another dietitian telling them, they may make the change in their life or they may not. But if you say, look, look at your genes. These are your genes. These aren't my genes. And your detox biochemical pathway may not be functioning optimally, but if you eat three to four portions of cruciferous a day, we can switch on those genes. I have definitely um, seen this, the, the data-driven motivation um, you know, with any type of testing, whether it's stool testing or, you know, I've had patients who, you know, were very hesitant to make certain lifestyle changes. And, you know, we did a hormone test that I would argue was actually maybe not even fully necessary because I kind of had a good idea of what was going on anyway, based on her symptoms and, you know, menstrual period, what that looked like around that time of the month. And, and so having those, those numbers and that data, she said, oh, okay, well, and now I understand and now I'll make those changes. And so sometimes it can be beneficial. I love how you brought that point up of actually seeing the data and using it as motivation because it is hard to feel like, you know, the recommendations are being personalized 
um, you know, someone is is not presenting that information. And also remember that DNA is a, doesn't change. So you're saying to them, this is your DNA results. You did the test once. You don't have to do it again mm. because this is your story for life. So I always say for some of us, eating healthy is not a luxury. We don't get to choose. This is our life. Broccoli sprouts for life because my DNA genetic variations are not going to change. So it's not like, oh, I'm going to do this really healthy plan for a month and then I'm going to go back to making the choices I did. Mm. So DNA is so, it doesn't get more personalized than DNA because you can't get away from it. It's in every single cell of your body. So it's like, this isn't a conversation around you're going to do a plan for a month, do a nice detox or whatever you want to call it, and then go back to your really bad choices you were making Mm. because your DNA is not going anywhere. So I find it to be an extremely powerful tool of understanding that if we want to present, prevent, sorry, prevent chronic disease mm-hmm. in 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years, we have to make those changes. Yeah, that's amazing. So what would you say is the ideal client for someone who absolutely should have genetic testing? Like, are there people that you think, do you think everybody needs a genetic test? I think it sounds like you're saying it's really valuable information for someone to have just to kind of learn more about themselves and generally know kind of where their DNA is presenting itself. I mean, I think ultimately that's exactly where we're going to land up. We're going to have these DNA passports where it's just going to be part of who we are. I mean, no one blinks an eyelid when you say, I need your glucose insulin or I need you to go for a a cholesterol test. Mm -hmm. But but I I usually divide it up into four groups of people who you will – kind of know that these are the kind of people come to your practice right so the first is let's talk about the optimal health so I just I always want to know more about who I am and I always want to do better because I actually want to live a very long and very healthy life and if you can give me some information that will help me do that I'm going to do it so that so we call them the optimal health mm-hmm. the second person is a sports a sports person who's I I train I Um, but I get injured or I don't seem to be able to improve my times or I don't feel like I'm doing the right training for myself or I'm tired all the time. So um, it'll be like driven by by sports. And it doesn't have to be elite at all. It could be what I call the committed recreational athletes like myself. It's like, I've only got three hours a week. How should I use my three hours? What is the best match for me of who I am if I'm only going to exercise three hours a week, mm-hmm. or, I mean, you could be the elite sports. So we do a lot of elite sportsmen as well. It's like, I can't get my times to budge. I just feel like I've plateaued. What am I missing? Okay. Mm. Then we, let's talk about weight. So I spoke about energy systems. We know that dieting per se fails in 90% of most people. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of patients that come to us and say, I've been dieting my whole life. I've tried every diet possible and nothing works. And my best friend did the same diet and they lost weight and I didn't. And the reality is there's a huge amount of truth in that. When I studied dietetics, if you came back to your dietitian and said, I didn't lose weight this week, they'll say, oh, you're obviously lying to me. You clearly were snacking and you, you, you're lying to me. And now from genetics, we know that that's not true. The way people respond to how we consume calories, store calories, and burn calories is so diverse that genetics enables us to truly understand who we are working with and what we're working with. 
It helps us create very realistic um, expectations around weight loss, goals, health, health parameters. It also helps us be able to curate a diet that's much more suited to that person. So understanding things like genetics taste, changes taste, genetics changes hunger, that people experience hunger differently was a major awakening for me. I just thought we all get hungry in the same way, that if we all don't eat breakfast by lunchtime, we're all hungry. And that's just not true. And yeah. if we eat you know, a burger and chips for lunch, we're all full. Not true. So for me, I mean, my PhD was in obesity because I had this um, like deep interest in why do we all experience weight so differently? And what is that? How much is genetics? And for some of us, genetics is really big and for some, not so much. Mm. So that's, for me, one of my favorite clients to work with. Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of the research into, I mean, I, I specialize in gut health. That's one of my main areas of focus. And there's specific gut bacteria that have been shown to be able to harvest more energy from calories, meaning, you know, when you eat a certain amount of food, one person might eat that amount of food, another person might eat the same amount of food, but the person with a specific gut bacteria might actually extract more calories and be more prone yeah. to weight gain because of their bacterial composition. So I think it's, it's so important. I think we have this old school view of uh, macronutrients, calories in versus calories out. You know, if you want to lose weight, you just reduce your calories, but it's so much more than that, which is what you're moving to from a genetic standpoint. Yeah, that, this, this blows the calories in, calories out, right out the water. Which is good. And, and, which is good. It should have gone out the water a long time ago. So this is, for me, is one of the most fascinating places of genetics is in, in weight and understanding weight. And then um, the last one is chronic disease. Mm -hmm. So this is where we have patients, clients come to us who are ill, have been ill for a very long time, are very frustrated with the practitioners that they've been to see. They've been given a lot of medication. They don't get better. No one's listening to them. No one's understanding them. Where we used, and, and I'd say this is probably where we have our greatest success, is understanding, remember what I said, we, do, we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. is root cause analysis. What is the contribution of genetics to understanding why this individual might, it might be fatigue, it might be autoimmune, it might be thyroid, it might, it might be any of these things. But what is driving it? Because it's not only going to be their diet and lifestyle choices. There's going to be something that's interacting with that, that choice that is driving this chronic disease. So it's extremely, extremely powerful to be able to understand, again, self-knowledge. We want to know who our patient is. We want to understand how the choices they've been making for the last couple of days have been interacting with their genes that might be causing this chronic disease. And once we know that, we can start crafting a much more personalized plan to be able to correct that. Mm. That's beautiful. Well, it's amazing to hear about the work that you've done and you're clearly very passionate about it. I absolutely love learning about, you know, some of the different markers that you've tested with your patients. Um, now, what are some of the, I guess, where, where do we have room to grow in terms of genetics? Like where is, what is the future of genetic testing, especially as it relates to um, specific nutrition interventions or lifestyle and diet interventions? Yeah, I mean, I think, for, so, for, for, so for me, you know, the, the genetic testing industry is appalling and, and we've made some major mistakes. And I think, you know, 20 years ago when the human genome was mapped, we, we set out with great dreams of using genetics to achieve human health. Mm 
And I think it landed up being, um, I don't know how to say this politely, but we landed up with like every single day I wake up, there's a new genetic testing company in the marketplace who's building another genetic test, who's offering you another, another solution to health. And I've been a part of many of those companies, hopefully some of the best ones, but still felt like we really hadn't solved the problem, which is how do I give you genetic information in such a way that is useful to you, both as a practitioner, but also as an individual, as an individual in your own journey. Mm. And you're able to understand it and extract value from it and make decisions. And I believe that the genetic testing industry has really failed on, on, on a couple of levels. And I, so m- most of my work over the last three, four years is trying to imagine how we can fix the industry. Mm. Because it's not just fixing one thing. You know, it's not just saying, well, um, we need to make sure that the ethics are, and data security needs to be fixed. Of course, we need to do that. Um, we need to make sure that the science we use is robust, it's transparent, it's solid, so that when you come and say, show me what science you use to cho- choose the genes you put in your genetic test, I can give you a methodology that is transparent, validated, and based on scientific principles. But it needed to go further than that. How do we create, how do we take what is essentially data, it's almost like computer coding, and put it into a format for you that is useful for you to make decisions? So that was one of the things that the genetic testing industry has failed at. So that's been one of the challenges I've been working with um, a business partner who, who focuses on design thinking and design and user experience and color and imagery. They said, how do we translate? Because otherwise... People are just buying data. Mm. They're buying data, and whether you pay $29 or $500, it's, it's data, and it's wasted your money. So how do we take genetic data and put it into, and this is where I think the most exciting change is going to be coming, is how do we translate genetics into something that you can gain value from, mm. both as a practitioner working with your patients, but also as a patient. The other part is education. So as you will know, when you go to university, you don't learn this stuff. You'll learn about polymorphisms, but you really don't learn about the conversation we're having today. And you also don't learn, how do I use genetics in my practice? How do I choose a company to work with? What are the questions I should be asking of that company? What are the questions I should be asking of the science? And then how do I integrate it into my practice so it fits part of my assessment, not stands alone, but becomes part of what I offer to my patients. Mm. And then the last part is, well, actually two last parts is once I have this education, say I can go to study courses, how do I, where do I go for mentorship? Where do I find an expert who's going to help me learn? Because as you know, when you finish dietetics, you always go and do an internship because you finish your formal learning and then you go and study like, okay, how do I do actually do this? It's the same with nutrigenomics. And the last part is, how do I build a community that is a safe community for me? So when someone like yourself who's a skeptic in the space says, I can go join this community because I feel that I can ask questions that are quite tough questions and I can rely on a bunch of experts to give me an answer and they're able to back up their answer. I don't want to go somewhere where everyone's selling the same test and everyone's got the same answer and everyone's been drinking the Kool-Aid. I want to go somewhere where I can learn this field, but also be a skeptic in the space. 
Mm-hmm. So from, you know, for me, we have a lot of work to do to fix the industry in all those. And it's only when we fix all of those things that genetics really creates value. So that's for me is what I hope the future, I mean, we could talk about like very futuristic things, but for me, that is the next 10 years. Okay. So people should be basically following your work because it sounds like you're a really important person in this space to be keeping an eye on. And and obviously this is something you're passionate about and something that just means a lot to me is your transparency, your willingness to answer my questions. Um, You know, I think it's really important to not drink the Kool-Aid and, you know, I do, you know, testing in my practice with the gut microbiome that has limitations. And I'm very open and um, honest with clients about that. This is data and we're going to use this data as information, but we're not using it as the only way of assessing your overall health picture. And so I think just as practitioners, it's, it's actually better to be more transparent and open about those things. Um, and it allows for you to stay up to date on what's to come and, and inform clients and patients about um, how we can better serve them and improve their quality of life. So, Absolutely. I mean, you answered it yourself. Everything that you said about using, I mean, microbiome is actually 10, 20 years behind genetics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you understanding the great challenges of microbiome, you know, there's value. You're experiencing it, but you also know there's so much you don't know. Yes. And genetics is 10, 20 years ahead of microbiome. So I always say, you know, don't throw the baby out of the bathwater mm-hmm. because you want to use the best. You want to make sure you're the most educated practitioner. You also want to understand when to extract value and where to step away. And genetics is no different. It's just we're a little bit ahead of, of the microbiome. But this is amazing information because, as you know, ultimately you're going to have a genetic test and a microbiome test. Yeah. yeah. And those two things together are going to give you this extraordinary amount of knowledge and insights about your patients. Well, it's funny because one of the, the main, um, you know, platforms that I use for, you know, place that I send patients to have blood work done if they don't want to get it done through their PCP is inside tracker. They do just, you know, basic blood levels. Um, and the two things that they've just added are genetic testing and microbiome testing. So I think we're going to start to see these companies really integrating those components because, of how important it is. It's just a matter of what's the quality of the test. Only thing, of course, is what the quality of those yeah. tests that they've integrated, right? So oh, yes. remember, you've got to ask the tough questions. If mm-hmm. it looks like data, if it looks, if genetics looks like a lab report, it's not clinically useful. So you've okay. got to go to find the reports that have clinical value, not just answers, mm-hmm. not just results. Yeah. So, and that's the same with microbiome. You know, you're looking for that translational gem. Mm-hmm. That really helps you, yeah. Absolutely. Well, this brings us to our final question of what is your favorite childhood memory with food? I know it's like it's such an anticlimax because it's so not the right answer, right? After discussing all these beautiful plant compounds. But but, I, but it is an amazing story. So my grandmother, the one I spoke about, she taught me how to cook and she taught me how to bake and she taught me how to knit. She was she was that kind of grandmother. Um And the one thing she taught me was to make macaroni cheese. (laughs) And she had a recipe that was handed down from her mother that is not like any macaroni cheese that you've tasted before. Mm. Um, You've never seen it before. And and it's been handed down from my grandmother to my mother to me. And and I've obviously taught my kids how to make it. And it's so funny because it is – it has always been for me because I spend so many hours making mac cheese with – 
with my grandmother and also that uh, people, I'm very well known for it. So everyone's like, if you're coming over, bring, you know, that it's become like the ultimate comfort food, but also the ultimate kind of connection that I had with my grand. So I know it doesn't win the nutritious um, award, but it definitely wins the kind of nostalgia, delicious mm. kind of full circle with my grandmother. Yeah, and we know that those types of things also can influence our genetics and our gut microbiome and our mental health and so, and I'll, I'll yep. always say, you know, well, there's calcium in there and there's some protein <laughs> from the cheese. <laughs> we put tomatoes in ours, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but, you know, I, I do this thing with my kids. I mean, maybe just as a parting shot. I, every time we have a meal, we try, you know, is I, we have this thing of like nutritious and delicious and they get to score it out of 10, you know, and they'll say like, this is 10 out of 10 for nutritious, but mom, it's like two to three out of delicious, you know, <laughs> but, but kind of, we, we know that delicious is good and doesn't always have to be this hardcore nutritious, mm. but that there's always an awareness that we do nutritious food. And if we can hit a 10, 10, you know, like 10 nutritious, 10 delicious, then it becomes one of our family like foods. Then it gets into the, the archives, I which is what that. we're always looking for. That's such a fun little tradition that you have. I love that and that awareness. That's so important. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your expertise. And I'm really glad that we connected and look forward to following your work and learning from you and your expertise. Um, where can people find you if they want to learn more? Yeah, I mean, um, so my company is 3X4 Genetics. So you can you can go to info at 3X4 Genetics. You can go to 3x4genetics.com. You can go to Yale at 3x4genetics.com. Any of those will find me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Yale. It was great talking with you and have a great rest of your day. Likewise. Thanks, Erin. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. I have some exciting news. I just launched my group coaching program, which is going to be starting at the end of September. It's going to be a small group of like-minded individuals who are dedicated to improving their gut health, getting to the root cause of why they aren't reaching their health issues. There's an option to upgrade to a one-on-one -on -one service with me for a discounted rate. And we're going to be going over things like stool testing, blood tests, supplements, hormones, tracking bowel movements, the whole gamut. If you're uncomfortable talking about bowel movements, it is not the right group for you. So if you're interested, you can apply at nutritionrewired.com where you can also find my cookbooks. Thanks again for tuning in. And as always, don't forget to share the health.